hello hello welcome back to loki's librarian if you are new here welcome i am your librarian katrina uh, this is where i am reading through the enormous library of books that you see behind me and then i give you a quick synopsis and tell you what i think about them so if you like books just aren't sure what to read next hit that subscribe button like and share my videos and let me know what you think in the comments this week's book is one that I owned before, then I figured I was never going to read it, so I donated it to the library, and then Netflix released Ancient Apocalypse, and I realized that this is why I don't get rid of anything, making this week's book of the week Fingerprints of the Gods by Graham Hancock. Um, sorry about the chewing, my cat thought this book was just as fascinating as I did. The accompanying cocktail is Sphinx, which is two ounces of gin, a half ounce each of dry vermouth and sweet vermouth, with a lemon wedge to garnish, except no lemon wedge for me because I forgot to buy lemons. So it's just gonna be just gonna be the booze today. I watched Ancient Apocalypse and was interested enough to want to read the book because this is not quite where it all starts. He he mentions in there. Um, wait, does he mention in that one or did I listen to that? I may have listened to that on an interview. Um, a, a, a book about basically the Ark of the Covenant and a tribe in Africa, Ethiopia, maybe that thinks that they have or that says they have the Ark of the Covenant don't know about that I haven't read that book but it got me interested in this one and so I read it and the book starts with maps very specifically the 16th century maps the Perry Reese map and the Orontes Phineas maps both of which seem to include topography from Antarctica which they should not as Antarctica was not discovered until the 19th century ponder that one for a moment it wasn't discovered till the 19th century, where the hell did those maps come from? Because both Piri Reese and Orontius Phineas admitted that they were drawing their ma maps off of older source maps. So who drew those older source maps? And what's interesting, incidentally, is that the topography of Antarctica is 100% accurate. And that topography is what's underneath the existing ice sheets currently discovered that are currently covering Antarctica and which have covered Antarctica since the end of the last ice age approximately 25,000 years ago. So who the hell drew these maps? Where did they come from? We know they're topographically correct from um, I think radar polling. Um, the, the U.S. military, the Air Force, there's actually a letter in there from not to Graham Hancock but to the guy who discovered this. I'm drawing a blank on his name but I'll put it up here. Um, Hapgood. There it is. It's Hapgood. Charles Hapgood? I think it's Charles Hapgood. But he uh, reached out to the Air Force, and the Air Force said, yes, this appears to be correct. This is topo topographically what Antarctica looks for, or looks like, excuse me. And that's really fascinating. Again, where the hell did these maps come from? Oh, right in one. So if Antarctica wasn't discovered until the 19th century, then how did these topographically correct maps of Antarctica come to exist 300 years prior to the 19th century, right? Even more intriguing, like I said, Piri Reese and Arontius Phineas both acknowledge they are drawing their copies off of even older source maps. So old that they include properly placed longitude. I mean, like everything is properly placed where it should be if the maps were rounded into a globe-like configuration. That's really interesting because latitude is easily calculated by any half-assed competent sea navigator using the North Star, right? And in fact, that's probably the first thing that you're taught when you're learning to navigate by the stars is how to locate the North Star and how to use that for your navigational purposes. And that helps you discover your north-south uh, polarity, where you are basically on a north-south 
vector. That's the word I'm looking for. Vector? Yes, that sounds right. Now, longitude was not so easy to figure out. East-west is kind of a wing and a prayer sort of thing. You head out on that east-west course and hope to God you hit land before you die. Before you run out of food, basically. And that was the case until the 18th century. Remember, kids, Columbus wasn't looking for to prove the world was round. They knew the world was round. They actually knew the world was round since the ancient Greek time with a fair degree of accuracy as to just exactly how many miles around it was equatorially. All right. I mean, I think within like a hundred miles, they were accurate in their, in their uh, calculations. He was looking for a quicker way to Asia than following the coast of Europe down Africa, then back up the other side of Africa until getting to Asia. But actually figuring out where on that east-west axis you were located was a guess until the 18th century when clockmaker John Harrison figured out a way to keep a clock time to Greenwich Mean Time. This, incidentally, is why England is held as the prime meridian. I mean, whichever country figured out the timekeeping secret first would have eternal bragging rights. It just happened to be England who figured this out first. And so Greenwich Mean Time is our, is our prime meridian. I gotta shake this. Anyways, these ancient maps are accurate to include latitude and longitude. Um, the maps, like I said, they are flat because they're maps, but they use ca complex mathematical formulas that would not presumably have existed at the last time Antarctica was not under ice, which is certainly before the pyramids at Giza were built. More on Giza in just a little bit. The maps in question create a conundrum, and I think it was on Ancient Apocalypse where the idea was floated that basically they ran out of room at the bottom, at least this is where I heard it, at the bottom of the map, so they just curved the coastline of South America around to the bottom of the page. But that doesn't explain that the, everything else is being placed longitudinally perfect. And the fact that modern 20th, um, at the time this book was written, 20th century sonar survey places the coastline that is buried under ice at exactly matching the maps. So there's definitely some questions here. So Hancock covers the myths of South and Central America, draws some very interesting parallels between the architecture, the age of said architecture, and some of the legends that abound there. And even if you don't buy his theory that an advanced ancient civilization spread across the globe in the wake of the last ice age, spreading knowledge, he certainly makes a very compelling case that pre-quote civilizing by the Spaniards, the cultures in Central and South America were highly advanced all on their own. They, they didn't need Christian civilizing, which tends to be true of a lot of places. Um, they, were quite, they were quite advanced all on their own. Now, they still practice human sacrifice, which could be seen as horrifying, but when you consider how many people the Christians killed in their quest for civilization, it's really not a comparison at all. The Christianity wiped out the vast bulk of South American and, well, South and Central American persons. It's, it's, that was an apocalypse all on its own. That was a genocide, like full on. And along the way, they also destroyed treasure troves of knowledge that they had, that, that the South and Central American peoples had, were demolished by the Christians as pagan writings. And so we have a great deal of knowledge that will never be recovered. It's, it's right up there with the burning of the libraries at Alexandria for knowledge loss. I, I think I read somewhere once that if we hadn't, if Alexandria hadn't burned, we'd be, we would have already colonized Mars like a decade ago. Think of how much more we would have accomplished if we hadn't lost that treasure trove in the genocide that happened in South and Central America. Um, where was I? Oh, that was such a tangent, now I gotta locate myself. 
okay, he does go into the Mayan calendar, and obviously the doomsday prediction of 2012 didn't really happen, but he also points out how incredibly accurate that calendar was in regards to dates and astronomical phenomena. Um, you know, I don't know, maybe 2012 just, may maybe our read of it was incorrect and it was supposed to happen like, you know, seven years later in 2020 when the world turned to shit anyways. And there is a real tendency, especially among those of European descent, to assume that indigenous cultures were not as advanced on Europe based on a fairly innocuous invention, or rather lack of it. Um, prior to Spanish incursions in South and Central America, there were no wheels on that continent, at least so we thought. And so Europeans tended to look down on the tribes, not just for their human sacrifice that they engaged in, but because they lacked the humble wheel. Right. I mean, how, how can any people who don't use this really basic conveyance that had been in Europe for literally thousands of years at this point, I mean, pre-Roman, they had wheels, right? How could they possibly be an advanced culture? Um, here's the thing. One of the oldest cultures on the continent, the Olmecs, they existed approximately from 1600 to 400 uh, before Common Era BCE. And found amongst Olmec locations are these little wheeled toys. I'm going to put a picture up here so you know what I'm talking about. And since there is clearly an axle between the wheels, all right, it's not like the wheels are just stand-in for animal feet. They're not just there for picture. That axle indicates that they knew that they could roll on them. So they knew what the wheel was. They just did not develop it as part of their technology. Why? Well, that hasn't been answered, and I'm betting the answer is somewhere in that treasure trove of knowledge that was destroyed by the Spanish. I have a theory, but I have a theory on that one, and I'm basing my theory off of something in the book. Um, Hancock, after describing his theory that the lost civilization was advanced and that all men were equal, which is unquestionably an admirable and beautiful goal, right? He does turn to wondering what happened to them. Where the hell did these people go? If, if his theory is right and they came from across the ocean and helped to establish these civilizations and advanced techniques, why did they just vanish after that? Where did they go to? Um, because they did vanish. And he then describes some carvings at Monte Alban, where figures that in other locations had clearly been exalted, and these carvings are corpses, uh, naked, castrated, tied up, beaten down. And I think, assuming that there was this advanced culture, that mankind's inherent jealousy reared its ugly head. Um, Rather than taking the knowledge offered and rising up and soaring with the information that was offered freely, some petty chieftain or overlord somewhere organized a rebellion and cast down the interlopers, which is absolutely 100% possible. Because humans everywhere suck. Not just white people. Humans everywhere suck. I don't, um, I don't think I care for that one. Ooh. Man, the aviation gin on its own is awesome, but ooh, that is not a happy pairing. Ugh. I don't even know how to describe that. It's not awesome. It's a theory, right? Excuse me, it's not a theory, it's a hypothesis. A theory is a little more set in stone than that scientifically. So it's a hypothesis. And it's as likely that the thousands of years of human sacrifice that followed were an effort to prevent the return of these persons as an attempt to bring about their return. Um, this tangent, incidentally, is one of the reasons this book was a challenge to read, not because it wasn't compellingly written, it very much was, but because I'd read something and my mind would take off on these tangents of what else might have happened and then I'd have to force myself to refocus. Um, the most fascinating part of the book, for me at least, was section four. 
Uh, here Hancock dives into, a, or does a deep dive into the similarities of world myths. There is not a single culture on the planet that does not include myths regarding mass flooding and the survival of two persons who repopulated the earth. I mean, not one single culture. They all talk about floods. And I agree with Hancock's assessment that the soft sciences of anthropology and archeology span are doing an extreme disservice to themselves and to knowledge in general by discounting these tales as pure myth. Here's why. Oral history is far written, far older than written history. Has to be, because we learn to speak before we learn to read or write. Historians and archeologists break mankind into two sections. We have prehistory and written history. Prehistory is everything that happened before there was a written record. A written record has only existed for about 5,000 years with cuneiform and ancient Sumer. So historians discount any tales from before the written word as prehistory and thus myth. Couldn't possibly have any basis in fact, it's all myth. What's really bizarre since geology, which is really bizarre, since geology has confirmed there were massive floodings at the end of the last ice age, and archaeology has proven that Homo sapiens sapiens, i.e. humans, were absolutely around at the end of the last ice age. So why is it so impossible for, for historians and archaeologists and anthropologists to wrap their heads around the idea that maybe these stories were handed down because they were real and they happened? And if humans were around and we have absolute proof of massive flooding, and we have proof of, yes, both incidents, why would they treat these human mythos of a flood as pure fiction? I don't know. I think it's the two-person allegory, maybe? The one man and one woman? I mean, why would that discredit a legend? And here's more food for thought on the oral tradition versus written history. Uh, the Native American tribes of North America didn't have a written history until they encountered Europeans starting in the 16th century. The Cherokee language was purely oral until the 19th century when they began a written format. But go ahead, tell the tribes that their history didn't happen because it wasn't written down somewhere. Uh, speaking of oral tradition and languages, there are some linguistic similarities between words in ancient Greek and words that appear in Southern and Central American tribes. And Hancock uses for his example, Alanis. And this is a direct quote from the book, so quote. Oannes is the Greek rendering of the Sumerian Uan, the name of the amphibious being believed to have brought the arts and skills of civilization to Mesopotamia. Legends dating back at least 5,000 years relate that Uan lived under the sea, emerging from the waters of the Persian Gulf every morning to civilize and tutor mankind. Is it a coincidence that Uana, in the Mayan language, means he who has residence in water? Isn't that curious? End quote. Um, end quote after water isn't that curious is my take on it and that is a pretty big coincidence here's another one and Hancock didn't mention it in the book which but it leapt off the page at me the second I read it and I'm going to read the whole paragraph so you have the full context quote several aboriginal Australian peoples especially those whose traditional homelands are along the tropical northern coast ascribe their origins to a great flood which swept away the previous landscape and society Meanwhile, the origin myths of a number of other tribes, the cosmic serpent Yerlunger, associated with the rainbow, is held responsible for the deluge. Now, any good heathen is going to see exactly what I just saw. And maybe Hancock missed it because he was focusing on the east-west movement of mankind, and this is a decidedly north-south connection. Um, now, maybe he didn't miss it, maybe he just didn't make it into the final edit. Yerlunger sounds suspiciously like 
Jormungandr, who in Nordic religion is the Midgard serpent who encircles the globe, and during the final cataclysm of Ragnarok, his thrashing will cause tidal waves. And the Rainbow Association in Nordic is Bifrost Bridge, so from Norway to Australia, north to south versus east-west, but the linguistic connection is interesting. I mean, frankly, if I were Hancock, or had the time, resources, and ability myself, I'd start meeting with linguists in the relative languages, see what other connections might exist between them. And I will say, while I was reading last week's book, this comic popped up about a life cycle that includes AI, and now I've got to wonder if it's more appropriate to this week's book, because, <laughs> yeah, that it makes sense, actually. Uh, he does spend a significant amount of time on Egypt, I mean, the pyramids, the plateau at Giza, they've been mysterious for literally thousands of years. I mean, even while he was writing this book back in 1993, more discoveries about Giza were being made. Like the fact that the pyramids line up with the stars in Orion's belt. And they lined up exactly with the stars. I mean, like the stars would be directly overhead of them at about 10,450 BCE. Which is known using modern computer programming and rolling back the sky. And his reasoning for the Sphinx having been built at the same time is spot on. Now, I'm not sure how Aliens Guy got prime time on History Channel back in the day and Hancock had to wait for Joe Rogan in the 21st century, but I think it is very unlikely that the pyramids were built in 2500 BCE, which is what the current contention is by you know, archaeologists. And let's start with construction. And I'm actually not talking about the precision with which they were built. I'm talking about the lack of precision in other pyramids that were built. Uh, those built before the Great Pyramids are already crumbling, and ditto for those after. And there's the confusion. The ones built before, sure, all right, because technology advances, right? You build these, they, they, they start to crumble, you build up other ones and they're even better, but the ones built after, technology doesn't roll backwards unless there's a massive loss in knowledge, like maybe an apocalypse, right? Otherwise, technology keeps moving forward. The example he gives in the book is, is, you know, a car manufacturer who decides to build a 1908 Ford Model T and then suddenly goes to a Porsche 1911 or 911, Porsche 911, excuse me, and then goes, nope, that's not good enough. We're going to go back to the Ford Model T. I mean, there's no comparison between those two cars, right? I mean, the Ford Model T is interesting and, and like some people like them as collector's items. That's great. But from a precision mechanical level, that, that Porsche is top of the line, comparatively speaking. Well, same with the pyramids. The ones that were built after the Great Pyramids are falling to dust. Why? Where did the technology go? How did they lose that technology in 100 years? That doesn't make sense. Now, for all of those who maintain these 200-ton blocks could have been moved and constructed using nothing but slave labor, here's some food for thought on that. Hancock points out when this book was written, there were only two cranes on earth that are capable of moving a 200 ton piece of anything. And the Egyptians didn't even have a block and tackle, let alone a modern crane. 200 tons, that's, that's 400,000 pounds. A house weighs 400,000 pounds. Now, I don't say it's impossible. I really don't. And the reason I don't is because you can like go to YouTube and find strongman videos of, of um, guys pulling trains on tracks. So I don't think it's necessarily impossible, but I don't think they've quite explained how it was done either. Now the final section loops back nicely to the mysterious maps. 
what if this lost civilization existed on the Antarctic continent when it was still attached to South America, or at least geographically closer to South America, and was then buried under ice during the last ice age where it remains buried to this day? I mean, under sheets of ice that are two miles thick. I mean, ground penetrating radar only goes down about eight feet. It'll be a while before we can see what lays underneath two miles of ice. This book raised a lot of really interesting hypotheses and interesting questions, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed how it openly shames historians for failing to address them properly. Uh, the usual response of historians to Hancock's theories is to roll their eyes like he's a quack or a conspiracy theorist. But really, and if nothing else, Elon Musk has helped show that conspiracy theorists are sometimes right. And you couple that with um, Boneyard Alaska, who is proving that, yes, mammoths were in fact in the Yukon way before people thought they were. I, I loved his interview on Joe Rogan where he said, where, you know, somebody said, oh, mammoths didn't live up there. He said, well, they sure died here. Yeah. Yeah. Or else how did their bones get there? So anyways, um, if the last three years have taught us nothing, it's that the experts usually have an agenda. They're not always to be trusted. The book I'm reading for next week also also covers how the experts are not always to be trusted. One of the things the archaeologists and historians use to discredit Hancock's theories is that there is no evidence of this advanced civilization during the time frames he's focusing on. And that's an interesting point, right? Where, where did they all go? Here's another interesting point. In 2009, History Channel released a show called Life After People. And it hypothesized that if humanity just vanished, within 10,000 years there would be no trace of us left on Earth. Now, while reading this book, I could only vaguely remember the show, and while I was trying to remember the name of it, I, I kind of Google searched it and found this Quora post um, right here. And the poster made the interesting point, and we're going to end the review on this one. He says, there will be one reminder and it will never be wiped out. I'm thinking of the massive construction and grading project beneath every major highway. Even after the concrete has crumbled, we'll still see the cuts and fills through the hills where the highways used to go. This massive earth-moving projects might be obscured by erosion, but there will still be enough evidence 10,000 years from now to demonstrate that a sentient race was once able to move mountains. What else are the pyramids at Giza than proof that a sentient race was once able to move mountains? That's it for this week. Uh, if you liked what you saw, don't forget to hit subscribe, and I will see you guys next Sunday. Bye.